The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week I'm joined by the writer, historian and former editor of The Times, Sir Peter Stothard, whose new book delves into the past. It's a book about a man who would have approved, I think, of the Chancellor's recent fiscal event. And that's Crassus, the first tycoon, the richest man in ancient Rome. Peter, welcome. Great to be here. Yes, I think Crassus would have very much liked the high interest rates. And he would also have liked being at the cocktail party where um, all, where everybody comes and finds the people who are really powerful and make sure they're happy with what, what he's doing. Well, very first thing I want to say, I'd always thought rich as Croesus. Is it rich as Crassus? Are Croesus and Crassus they're, they're homophonic ancients, but one was <laughs> Greek and one was Roman, which is... Which is the origin of the phrase? No, it's definitely Richard's Cre- Richard's Croesus was about 400, 500 years, 400 or so years before uh, before Crassus. And he ruled, actually, he ruled a chunk of what was called Lydia, which, where all the gold came from. And uh, he was famous in the Greek world for being uh, extraordinarily rich. But it was quite a small economy in, in, in those days. I suspect uh, Crassus, who lived 400 years later, was a, a great deal richer. Now... You call him the first tycoon, and you know, as you set out in the book, part of the famous triumvirate of Pompey and Caesar and Crassus, but his influence was, at least for most of the pomp of his career, was through money rather than through force of arms or, or direct politics. Is that what made him the first tycoon? I mean, what, what was sort of innovative about his his financial setup? Well, a tycoon means someone who... Is normally very well wealthy, but who exercises a lot of secret power. The, the word was first, I mean, it's a Japanese word, in fact, it came and it was first used by the Japanese to explain to the Americans who did their kind of quasi-commercial invasion in sort of 1860, you know, Commander Perry. Commander Perry comes along and says, who's in charge here? He's expecting to speak to the emperor and they have to tell him, no, look, the emperor actually is God you know, and he, he doesn't do anything. He say, no point talking to the emperor. And they say, well, the shogun actually is really in charge. But shogun just means kind of general. And that didn't seem grand enough. So they produced this word tycoon, which meant someone who is, is powerful, but is a lot more powerful than he seems to be. And that went in particularly into, Amer- into American English. So Abraham Lincoln's secretary called Abraham Lincoln a tycoon, not because he was spectacularly wealthy, but just because he had fingers in every pie and when, when, when he was doing stuff. So the word gradually moved to become a kind of essentially a rich person who, who dabbled in politics. But it, it began really as a, as, a, as a politician who was a lot more powerful than he seemed to be. What was innovative about Crassus? He made money at a time when... Romans didn't really like talking about making making money. I think his first money that he made was equivalent to people making money after the Blitz. He bought up houses and, and properties and businesses when basically there was a lot of smoking ruins and nobody quite knew what, what, you know, whether Rome was going to pick up or not. And he 
he took a punt. I mean, like a lot of these people, he did, he did buy the lands and houses of of people who'd fallen foul of of the government or the the dictator that he was working for. But it's a bit like the, a bit like in the, the oligarchs at the end of the Soviet Union. They, they did pick up resources. He did pick up resources that were cheap. But as some of those oligarchs used to tell me, and it wasn't quite as easy as it looked, because even at the end of the Soviet Union. The, the, the aluminium factory didn't just fall into your lap. You had to borrow money somewhere. You had to buy the aluminium factory, even though it was pretty cheap. And you also had to know that Boris Yeltsin was, wasn't going to take it back off you, or indeed Boris Yeltsin's enemies weren't going to take over again and take everything back from you. So it wasn't. So the oligarchs didn't get rich in the Abramoviches quite as easily as we, we now sort of are led to think they did. And, and neither did Crassus. He was prepared to take financial risks at a time when... He obviously did have some advantages because he was on the winning side in the latest phase of the Civil War. But, but he, he, he was a risk taker and he understood money in a way that most Romans didn't. I didn't mean he understood it very well by modern standards. In order to get rich, you just have to understand money a bit better than the next guy. And Crassus certainly yeah. did that. Well, you mentioned the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And actually, there does seem to be at least in part a parallel. I mean, as you set out in the early part of the book, you know, Crassus came to power, didn't he, at a time of or not came to power, sorry, he came to manhood or adolescence at a time of sort of spectacular political turmoil. And his route to the triumvirate was by no means a straight or predetermined one, was it? No, it was the late, it was the, just one phase in a massive class struggle, Well, as it would used to be called a class struggle. I think it's still not a bad way, way, way of looking at it. Between populists on, on the one hand who increasingly filled the army and therefore were getting more, the poor were getting more important to Rome because they filled the army. And the rich were getting a bit less, less important in some ways because they, they weren't getting, they, they were just landowners who fought, who fought in, the, in the army. And so they couldn't, the rich couldn't do without the poor. And so the poor got themselves a leader who called Gaius Marius and, and the, the, uh, the rich didn't find one for a while and eventually found an extremely, a rather extremist leader called Sulla. And in the way of politics, the moderates got squeezed out and Crassus's father was a classic sort of upper-class moderate who just couldn't stay standing in the battle between these two, these two extremes. So when Crassus himself came into, into public life, he, I mean, he had to flee Rome because his, the other side was in charge and he had to go and live in a cave in Spain. But um, you say his last sight of his father was a head on a pike. Exactly, his last father and, and his brother had been killed by the um, populist too. So I mean, he—I don't think he wasn't. Neither he nor his father were natural sort of hardliners. And as soon as Crassus got into power, he moved into the centre pretty heavily. But he, he didn't have much choice but to join the extreme conservative side, and he fought for them in in the civil war, and that was the shaping of his of his youth, and that's. Really got his, when he got his first break because he, he won a significant battle for, the, for, the, for this first dictator, Sulla. And he was in the right place at the right time, won the battle, got into Rome, and then was able, when other people were killing people and torturing them and generally taking revenge for the people of what they'd done, the other side had done to them, Crassus went peacefully about the place, buying up all the shops. <laughs> and that first battle is kind of extraordinary. The Battle of the Colline Gate, is it? Called? Yeah. Where Crassus... I mean, Pompey, who's his great sort of opposite number and rival, isn't he, all the yeah. time? Pompey's on one side fighting, 
And Crassus is on the other, is that right? No, no, Pom- no Pompey's just not there. Pompey's not, uh, is it Sulla on the other side? It, no, so, so Pompey, Sulla and Crassus are all on the same side. But, but it was a very complicated war. It's called the social, it was the end of what was called the social war. It's not uh, the least social wars of all, of all time. But it was just a war with, with Rome with its various allies in Italy, all of whom wanted some share of the, all the money and good things that are coming out of being on the, on the same country as Rome was. They wanted to sort of crush the Allies in order to show that Rome was on top, but they knew they needed the Allies. So it was one of those wars that basically Rome won, but the Allies got everything they wanted anyway. And it, it was fought all over Italy. And so at the time when uh, this big battle at the Colline Gate took place, Pompey was in a different, equally important part of the, uh, of the war zone, but he just wasn't there. Sorry, I, I, when I said other side, I, I didn't make myself clear enough. It, it's the, I meant the other flank, because there's the, the description of the battle. You have two sort of wings yeah. of the army. Sorry, who, so, I thought Sulla has, Sulla has one wing, wing. and, and uh, himself has one wing, and, uh, and, and Crassus has the, uh, has the other. They were fighting a pretty serious uh, enemy, not just these Marians, as they were called, the popular side, but also tens of thousands of Samnite tribesmen we call tribesmen now, but in fact, at the time, they would have been just the same as any, any, any Italian or any, any, any other kind of soldier. They're a pretty fierce force, and they were determined to exterminate Rome if they could. So, you know, it was no, no joke battle, and, and Sulla's side did extremely badly, but Crassus's side did a lot better, and, and Sulla, not surprisingly, was very grateful for that. Can you tell me a bit about the relationship between this sort of I mean, Caesar at that stage is a rather minor figure, I think, isn't he? And yeah. Crassus sort of brings Caesar up. Why is that? How does that sort of triangular relationship between the three men develop? Well, that's what makes Crassus as a modern politician. He knew that he couldn't balance Pompey by himself. Well, he could have taken the view. He had some experience. He'd won the Battle of the Colline Gate. He could have decided to become a general in his own right. But in fact... He didn't do that for various reasons, either because he knew he wasn't really that good at it or because he'd rather stay at home. He hardly ever, ever left Rome. And so he discovered that you could counterbalance. He wanted to be the first man of Rome. It was a long time before anyone was thinking that you'd be an emperor or have a single ruler. But being a a top guy in the club was was still something they wanted to be. And uh, Pompey was going one way about doing it. And Crassus stayed at home and did all the various things he needed to do buying, bribing, you know, selling, doing favours, working behind the scenes. And one, of his, and one of his working behind the scenes towards the end, the latter period, was building up Caesar as a counterweight to Pompey. So he, he created the idea of this triangle, and he couldn't, he couldn't counter Pompey in every respect himself, but he could help Caesar do that. Try and give me a sense. I mean, in blurbing your book, Mary Beard describes Crassus as an elusive figure. I'm wondering how much can you get a sense from the sources of what sort of what he was like, what his character was. The, the most, the source that gives us the greatest sense of his character, of course, is, is Plutarch, the, the biographer of Pompey and Caesar, and uh, lots of other Greeks and Greeks and Romans too. And Crassus suffers a bit in in this because. Plutarch was a great artist, and he'd written, you know, his biography of Caesar, all the big battles, all the big events. He'd done Pompey, all the big battles, all the big events, sometimes the same ones. And then Crassus, you know, he doesn't wasn't going to repeat the whole thing. So Crassus's story 
became, becomes a bit of a sort of morality tale. Instead of a, a balanced life, Crassus is essentially a rich guy who gets his comeuppance. There was a sort of prejudice against the rich at all levels of Greco-Roman society because the aristocrats thought getting rich was rather vulgar and the poor people weren't rich. And, and so if you became extremely rich, and particularly if you then subsequently became a bit of a failure, as Crassus famously did in the end, your biographers didn't take a very um, or the historians didn't take a very good view of you. So you, you essentially, he was characterised and caricatured, really, as, as a, a rich bastard who got what he deserved. And, and, and that's one of the problems. We, I mean, a lot of people deal with him in different ways. Uh, Appian, Diocasius, Valerius Paterculus. Everybody has, a, you know, there are lots of people who refer to him. But he's, he's damned by two things which are catastrophic in as a character in the ancient world. One is that he was, in the end, he was a failure. And in additionally with him, he was fabulously wealthy. Neither of those things made you popular. Were feats of arms essentially still the main currency of glory? Yes, this was changing and would change, but, but, it, but even well into the empire, even an emperor like Claudius, who, you know, who was, was certainly not capable of feats of arms, felt that in order to sort of be emperor, it was a good idea to invade Britain and, and look as though he was doing something of a sort of ancient general stuff. So yes, you know, it was, it was extremely important. And Crassus was no Claudius. I mean, Crassus had not only won the Battle of the Colline Gate when he was very young, but halfway through his career, he also was brought out of retirement because he could buy his, you know, pay for his own army and defeat Spartacus. You know, where Spartacus began as a nothing, not so not very important, but by the time Crassus was involved, was quite a threat to, to Rome. And so it wasn't that Crassus was unable to do military things. It's just that he wasn't as good as Pompey and Caesar. Well, nobody, nobody was. And he had other ways to pull the strings and levers and uh, play the puppet master. And that, that issue of Spartacus, which obviously is, you know, much filtered for us all through the film. I was fascinated by the detail in your book that it sounds like Crassus, to some extent, it wasn't just a military defeat, was it? He sort of bought off the pirates who were going to help Spartacus escape across the sea. Is that right? Yes, I think that's almost almost certainly correct. And also he used his organisational skills, building skills, to defeat Spartacus. I mean, he built a huge wall, enormous rampade, ramparts and palisades across the, the toe of Italy by, by Sicily in order to bottle Spartacus up. I mean, he thought big, particularly in the sort of engineering sense. I mean, to be fair, so did Caesar, but Crassus was a builder. And he needed to defeat Spartacus quickly, because otherwise Pompey would get back and would claim all the credit. And so he, he wasn't going to get much credit out of defeating Spartacus anyway, because defeating a slave army didn't really get you any glory in Rome. But any glory that he might have got would have been stolen by Pompey, unless he managed to defeat Spartacus pretty quickly. And so he, he did that, and he was very successful in doing that. But it was an organisational and financial, as you say, skill as much as, 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 as a set-piece battle. And this business of the crucifixions, which again is fixed in all of our minds, he took very, very savage revenge against slave uprising. But there was a sort of almost logistical way he did it. Yes. There? Can you kind of explain a bit how that, how that worked? Well, it has to work a little bit. This is a somewhat speculative. But you have to think, if you've got several thousand pretty hard 
fighting slaves at one end of the Appian Way and, and, and you decided that for the purposes of encouraging the others, you were going to crucify them every hundred yards all, all, the way, all the way up to Rome. How do, you kind of, how do you do that? I mean, it would take you a huge army of people to sort of basically take every single one prisoner. They've got nothing to lose and, you know, and hammer them onto the crosses. And, or, as people I think of quite... I'm not the first person to think, to, to think of this, that, that what, what you do is you really take them from the back so you march them to Rome and then in a long column and then you crucify the ones at the back so the ones at the front never know what's happening until it's too late. Now, no, no ancient source actually says that that's happening. It wouldn't be the kind of thing that they, anybody would have thought was very important. And, and he may well have just, I don't know, done something different, but it's, it's quite hard to think. It's one of those things sometimes when you're writing a biographical history, you don't always have every bit of the colourful detail in an ancient source. But sometimes you can say, well, look, that's almost the only way it could have happened. Almost like saying, well, we don't actually know they got wet when they went out in the rain. But if you go out in the rain, you get wet. So it's, it's reasonable to say they were wet. You know? And uh, yeah. Yeah, no, not, not every historian takes that degree. Would Some would say that's a bit liberty. They'd say, well, how do you know you got wet? Maybe you put a hat on. And, and maybe they crucified the, the slaves in some other way. My, my sense, and I say I'm not the first person to sense this, is that they did this in a, in a particularly well-organised way, not least because that was the kind of person Crassus was. Yes, well-organised. I mean, I'm interested in how attractive you find him as a character. I mean, obviously, you know, crucifying a slave revolt one by one you know, would strike most of us today as a bit to throw, <laughs> but it was pretty par for the course of the Roman world. Was he an unusually cruel or cold person, or was he... A sort of average Roman toff. He was a family man, it would be fair to say, as they, <laughs> as, as they often say about, about mass, mass murders. Oh. Uh, and, and for someone who was extremely wealthy, he lived a very modest life. He married the widow of his brother. Now, the, the unkind said he married the, the, the widow of his brother in order not to have to send the dowry back, because he'd have to send all the money back to her father if, if they hadn't kept her in the Crassus family. That, that, was, that was his wife, and he, was, he, seemed to, he was very nice to his children and looked after them. And he also lived in quite a modest house. I think he despised the rich people who bought these big houses from him. He would build these palaces and sell them to people who couldn't really afford them. And then they, he, they were always basically mortgaged up to the hilt to him. And he sort of despised them for, for, for living well beyond their means while he lived spectacularly within his means. So, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of one, that's one part of him. But his, one of his ancestors was called Ag- Agalestos, which means kind of no laughing matter, no jokes around here. And I, I think, <laughs> in general, he thought that the, a little bit of that entered his character, that, and that he was prepared to take a very hard line with people who, who the wrong people who owed him money or the wrong soldiers who, who, who weren't as brave as he thought they should have been or to, or to mean that, that the slave, if he was going to put down a slave revolt, he didn't want to have to go and put down another one. So uh, <laughs> he was... Yes, you say he, 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 did, he did order the odd decimation, didn't he? Yes, he, yes, he did. I mean, again, that, that was kind of going a little bit out of style. This is where you, get, you, you kill every tenth man in your legion and not you don't kill him you get the other his mates to kill him so it, 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 has, it has a pretty calming effect on uh, on uh, rebellious morale 
and it was becoming it was getting a bit out of style by the time Crassus was doing it. But he wasn't the, certainly wasn't the first, and he wasn't the last to do it to do it either. Now, his great uprise was, as you say, money, webs of influence, having everyone owe him something. But his downfall, because it's a one, you know, it's a story that has a wonderful downfall. His downfall was military, wasn't it? Why on earth did he set off on this military expedition when he was, by the standards of the time, getting on a bit? Yes, yes, he was, and it's the kind of question you ask about Vladimir Putin, isn't it? Really, <laughs> kind of, you yes. know, he got. You know, he well, got, there, are, there are other parallels. Yeah, he sure got everything. He got up, everything. But... Everything. Everything. Anybody could want, and then you decide. Actually, and, and you know, unless you can lead a victorious army and, into a, a neighbour, you, you haven't really proved yourself on the on the historical stage. Well, that, that was certainly part of what of what Crassus thought. I think his balancing act was running out of road. You know, he Caesar was becoming enormously powerful in Gaul and rich and was clearly going to be difficult to keep up with Caesar so he'd he basically created a bit of a monster in in Caesar Pompey did Caesar turn on him by the way did Caesar cease to become his creature or show ingratitude no Caesar never turned on him who knows what would have happened if uh, if 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 he'd won in in Parthia or had made a decent fist of it um we just don't know what, what what would have happened there. No, no. Caesar was extremely nice to him. Caesar was very grateful, and Caesar lent him for, for this campaign when he decided he needed a military success too. So he was going to invade Parthia. He he needed some archers, and he needed some cavalry, and he needed and he also needed his son back, who was fighting for Caesar at the time. And Caesar was very happy to give him his son and a thousand cavalry and send them send them off east. Caesar was. Never had a massive falling out with uh, with, with, with Crassus. He didn't. He didn't need to. Crassus fell off his perch, unfortunately, before um, Caesar needed to, to to turn on him. I mean, Caesar didn't. Caesar was very provoked to, to turn on Pompey. It's no point really in speculating what would have happened if things had, had gone the other on the other way. But Crassus certainly felt he, he could get money in Parthia, the kind of money. The, the genuine sort of gold beds and gold tables and uh, stuff that Pompey was bringing back. He could, you know, he could top up his treasury. He could, he could help his son, and he could make him the, the Crassi equal to the Pompey and Caesar as military heroes. And that means that that triple alliance they had, which the critics called the three-headed monster, that the three-headed monster would generally have three heads, and he would be one of them. Yeah. Now, Parthia obviously is what he set off to invade. It seems like at the time it was a little bit here be tigers on the map. <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah. What, what, you know, why Parthia? Because the sense you give is that for a while they were like, well, these guys right over there in the east, yeah. they're doing whatever they're doing. You know, we've got Gauls to worry about and Spain to pacify and God knows what else. Let's let them be. Yes, well, that would that was actually quite a sensible policy. It would have been, would have been, would have been quite sensible to have to, to have, have kept it that way. But there was a an element in the Roman mind and the sort of Roman culture, which you know, Virgil eventually sort of summed it up. You know, that they wanted a sort of empire without end. There was there was no logical or practical end to the Roman Empire, so you had to, they had to keep going. And and Parthia was was there, though nobody was quite sure exactly what it was. The Romans knew very little about Parthia. I mean, this, and they certainly didn't understand it. Torquatus didn't understand it. There were very few Parthians in Rome, so they understood about Greeks and Gauls and 
Celts and all sorts of other people because there were, you know, there were Germans, there were everywhere, there were people all over, you know, there were slaves, you had some idea what they were like. There, was very, there were no Parthians really in Rome and they were just, they were like a, from their point of view, a kind of nomadic kingdom over, with hu- over a huge area and, and, and sort of barbarians really. And if you could find them and, and, and give them a good kicking, you know, there was lots of, lots of rewards for this. It wasn't really a very well thought out plan. They and, and, uh, and this, again, you get the kind of it's easy you, you, you do get the Putin analogy a little bit. I mean, Putin has every and much more reason to understand Ukraine than the Crassus had to understand Parthia. But it was quite clear neither of these invaders really understood what was going on in this place very much, and not least because the, the Parthians had these aged kings for the most part pretty cynical traders constantly doing deals with their neighbours and the Armenians and generally this is the Roman way of looking at it probably true only fighting when they really had to and so Crassus probably thought that he could whip in to Parthia win a bit of a battle against some cynical old monarch who would say oh that's, that's enough of that thank you very much there'd be an exchange of gold bars and, and uh, gold bedsteads and uh, he'd be able to come back as, as, as the hero and it would all be hunky-dory. But in fact, he ran up against a, a kind of young sort of Zelensky of the desert called Serenas, who, who was an exceptionally imaginative fighter who basically fought his, his battles in a way that the Romans didn't really understand and would never have thought they could possibly do. And so um, he came up against an opponent that he didn't really know existed, of, of a kind that he didn't know existed, using weapons and tactics that he was utterly unprepared for when he was expecting just to do a bit of threatening and wheeler-dealing as he always did, and the result was a yes, catastrophe. Sort of, weirdly, he was in the position of being the, the soldier at this stage, expecting to find somebody who was more like him on the other end. Yes, exactly. Or more like the civilian yes, version. Exactly. And indeed he had... Probably more reason to think that. I mean, I, I think you know. I think when Caesar went into Gaul, he he wasn't expecting to find other people like Caesar. He knew he would be fighting a sort of guerrilla war. You know, it was tough, tough fighting against people who were not really like his guys. I think Crassus had more reason to think that he would find a wheeler dealer like himself. But in fact, he came up against this in, in an astonishing scene and very well described by. Plutarch and Appian and uh, other historians, well, you've got to work your way through the evidence for exactly what happened. I think I try and, and make, make a decent account of that. But one way or another, there was this old, this sort of Roman army formed up in their squares, a bit like the British in Africa with red, with red tunics, and, uh, and thousands of little guys on, on horses with bows and arrows. And uh, the Romans were normally pretty cool about that. They didn't think that cavalry or archers were really much of the, you know, they would do their stuff and then they'd be run out of arrows and they'd run out, the horses would get tired and uh, then the real fighting could start. And then Crassus saw that there actually weren't any real fighters there at all. There didn't seem to be any infantry at all. So what was going on? But what was going on was that this guy Serenus had seemed to have worked out a scheme whereby he had an infinite supply of these little horses supplied with camels full of arrows. So Crassus saw something you know, totally different in the desert. Instead of soldiers, infantry that he might have been expecting, he saw guys on little ponies 
with, with bows and arrows, with, with, with astonishing power. The Romans had never really put much effort and interest in bows. So these very powerful bows, these very heavy arrows. The composite bows. Yeah, 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 the composite bows. The himars of the ancient world. Exactly. They're very powerful, very powerful. They didn't, and Crassus had been told about them in advance. He'd seen them, but he didn't really take any notice of it. But they also were kept on reloading. They were, of course, you know, it's like a, a permanently AK-47, you know, a permanently self-loading war machine. Well, this is actually, they'd run up on the on the infantry, pepper them, yeah. hail them with arrows, yeah. then sort of wheel round and go back to the camels and just quickly grab some more yeah, and then, arrows and then repeat. Yeah, and do it just all day. And, 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 there, and this was absolutely not what Crassus would prepare for. And, of course, they could fire straight into the shields of the Romans, of the Romans and get through them because they're so powerful. But also they could fire, so it was falling like rain, they could fall over, over them as well. A day of that and this crack force that Crassus had brought in was in, in pretty poor state. So he sent out a force of, with his son and, and his own archers and his own, his own cavalry, not really archers so much, but his own cavalry and with their equipment to, to chase down the, the Serenus' cavalry. And they were just picked off in a sort of mini version of the square in which he, the father was. So there was there was two squares of, of, of Romans being peppered with these arrows. And then, and then the son gets an arrow in his hand and then he pretty much has to stop and he's the, they capture him and they cut his head off. And so Crassus's last sight of his father was a head on a spike as he left Rome when he was being exiled. And um, his last sight of his son was his head on a on a spear spear too. Yeah, so that happened to you twice is unfortunate. Yes, and then and then he had to get away. He could have got away, and that's a diff- that's also quite a dramatic dramatic story. But but uh, he didn't. Yes, it's a detail that that we have a sort of little cameo here from Cassius. Yes, murdering Caesar fame. You, in fact, you suggest that it's it's Cassius's memoir that gives us all this detail. Is that right? Yes, I think that's almost certainly true. Cassius, fascinating character, you know, eventually, um, say, betrayed, went over to Caesar and then betrayed him. But at this stage, he was, I think he felt that he knew a lot more about being a general than, than Crassus did. And so he was, I think he was number two when they set off. But as soon as Crassus's son arrived, he sort of would move down the order and was number three. And, and whenever they were at camp, from what we can tell, this is, I say, probably Cassius's own account, so be careful, but he was the one who warned that these new arrows were actually might be a rather interesting secret weapon and um, you should be careful of them. He was, he was the one who, who said that they should be hug the river and, and keep a, a line of retreat open rather than just setting off into the desert and seeing if they could find some uh, barbarians to give a good whopping to. So he was. So, so Cassius portrays himself as the guy who would give him the good advice, but whose advice was ignored. So when he manages to scamper back to Rome and escape, as Crassus didn't, I think anybody who was 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 there to listen would have heard Cassius talking about how Crassus really came came a cropper, and it's only because he didn't didn't take the very good advice that um, he he Cassius had, had given him. I mean, Cassius had to build himself up, of course, because the Romans weren't that keen on people who were part of defeated armies. You know, so Cassius had to say, "Look, I'm sorry. Yeah, we didn't do very well, but it wasn't my fault. It was his fault." Yes, well, that, that's that's something for the ages, isn't it? But he was also given a warning 
in advance, there's a lovely detail that he, he has a kind of parley, doesn't he, on his way in before he's met these fateful oh, composite yes. arrows and camels and God knows what else. And tell us about that, that scene, because it's rather lovely. <laughs> he is told that the king wants to send an, an, an emissary to him, a sort of an ambassador. The Romans were pretty sniffy about emissaries. They, they didn't treat an ambassador from a foreign king as anything like the king, you know, the king himself. And they, as a general, reckon not be take them very seriously. But this, so this old guy comes along. I don't think Crassus is very um, welcoming or particularly symp- sympathetic. And he says, look, I'm going to um, give you guys a hiding and I'm going to take over your capital in Catisiphon. This guy just looks at him and puts his, his hand puts his hand out with his palm and he says and he says, There'll be hairs growing on this palm before you take Catisiphon. And, uh, I don't think Crassus probably had the faintest idea what he, he he meant by this. Nor possibly even did Plutarch, who told us the story. Modern scholars think that it was a, a kind of crude to Zoroastrians who were rather Puritan. Someone who had hair on their palm was a masturbator. The, the 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 Easterns were the the Parthians and indeed not not just them were pretty sniffy about Roman the sort of sexual activities of Roman, Roman soldiers and we could have mocked them they would occasionally find sort of erotic literature in their bags when they defeated them and were kind of and anyway anyway one way or another this was quite a, a, an insult probably more of an insult to Crassus than than Crassus than Crassus understood and indeed of course by the time. Uh, Crassus got to Cassisophon, his uh, head was uh, in, a, uh, in a bag and, according to some accounts, had been stuffed with the gold to remind people what, he, what a, a greedy boy he'd been. Yes. And why was it that he, his head did end up in Cassisophon when Cassius escaped? How did, he, how did he fail to show a clean pair of heels? <laughs> it's possible that Cassius betrayed him, either by accident or, or, or deliberately. His, his great advantage after he lost this, the, the main battle, was that he divided everybody up into, into groups, which is clever. And so Serenus would never really have succeeded or been considered by his king to have won unless he killed Crassus and, and brought his head back, because this was Crassus's war. It was well known that it wasn't a Roman war. Nobody else wanted to fight this war. This is Crassus. So in order to solve this problem, he had to kill Crassus. Therefore, he had to find him. And finding him, you know, when the Roman forces had been split into five or six groups, wasn't that easy. But Serenus turned up outside the, the walls of, of uh, convenient, some convenient walls and, and, and said he wanted to talk to Crassus. And, and Cassius, instead of saying, no idea where he is, mate, said, oh, yes, he'll be down shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely unhelpful. was obviously prepared to talk, I suppose, and again, at the, even at the last minute, thought that he could probably do a deal. And basically, Cassius was used to be able to buy anybody off. So he was expecting, even at that stage, I suspect, that he'd just say, look, you know, you can have the entire Pall Mall and the entire Belgravia of Rome and, uh, you know, and, and just let me go. Thank you very much. But then they had a bit of an argument Literally, it was the most pathetic, feeble argument on, on the way as to who rode what horse. And there was a bit of a scuffle. And the people who were guarding Crassus sort of panicked and thought it would be simpler and easier just to uh, cut his head off. So they did. Meanwhile, Cassius was able to escape with all these various uh, escape parties that were wait- trying to make their way back to the Euphrates. And as they say, the rest is history. But curious, 
since modern parallels again, you know, we're seeing the Russians are finding it quite hard to change their military doctrine to adapt <laughs> to coming across a force they weren't expecting, fighting in ways they weren't expecting. Did the Romans start to rethink the old, you know, we'll have thousands of infantry in a big square and that's how we'll win battles? Did they start to rethink their military doctrine as a result of what happened in Parthia? It wasn't that the, the, the defeat in Parthia had enormous Im- impact, but not particularly on that, because Caesar and Pompey were too smart to do that kind of thing anyway. Caesar, you know, Caesar knew exactly how to fight in Gaul, using extraordinary speed and flexibility. And I mean, no one ever suggested that Caesar or indeed Pompey were sort of old-fashioned uh, generals who didn't know what they were doing and stuck in their ways. They weren't. So the Romans were never going to take their their lead from anything that Crassus, uh, Crassus had done. The uh, Roman military doctrine kept on developing, and very, success, very successfully it did. And Crassus played really no part in that. But what it did it was it was the defeat at Carrhae, the battle kept, became known, completely sort of seared the the Roman consciousness that the fact they could be defeated. It was one of the two biggest defeats in the sort of first and second century. And when eventually Julius Caesar's adopted son Octavian became the emperor Augustus. Then you eventually you really did have you know you didn't know then who was the first man in Rome. The question that Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus had been asking was finally decided in favour of Caesar's son. One of the first things he wanted to do was to get back the legionary eagles, the standards of Crassus's army, and uh, he set off and eventually he did a deal and just bought them back. That made it look as though he'd won. In fact, if, if Caesar hadn't been killed on the Ides of March. He was going to lead a force into Parthia the next week. So avenging Crassus uh, for Caesar and then for Caesar's son was enormously important. But Caesar's son was smart enough to do it the way that Crassus probably wanted to do it in the first place, by bribery and dealing and threats rather than actually fighting the archers on their ponies again. They didn't want to go that route. No, and wisely so. There's also a final detail... It's suggested, I'm not sure with what reliability, but in your in your narrative you give some weight to the idea that Crassus's severed head became a kind of prop in a performance of a Greek tragedy. Yeah. Is, that, uh, yes. is that right? I mean, one thinks of Parthia as a long way away from Greece. Well, that's the important, that was the Roman way of looking at it. They thought that these guys were barbarians. But in fact, um, you know, the, the, the first Parthian king appears as a, an actual named character in the Persians of Aeschylus, in, in, and, and this was a Greek, a Greco-Eastern country or country area, tribe, whatever, whatever you wanted to call it. The Romans didn't really quite know what it was, but it was deeply imbued with the, the spirit of Alexander the Great. You know, I mean, the, the Romans tended to see Greek Greek influence as, as we have often done as coming entirely westward. You know, Greek thought, Greek science, Greek philosophy, you know, came become west through Rome and out into Europe. But of course, it was always going east. And, and, and since that's where Alexander was, it was in, to a degree, it was more east. The most important legacies of, of, uh, of Greece were filtered through eastern sources. But the Romans weren't very interested in that, didn't really know about that. And so, so the idea that, the, that the, they would have these tragic performances of Greek tragedies would have seemed really weird. I mean, the, the, the Bacchae was a very sophisticated and important play, is considered one of the greatest of the Greek tragedies. It was certainly never performed in Rome, as far as we know, with no evidence. The Romans quite liked a Greek comedy from time to time, which they sort of turned into Latin, but they didn't. So, but, so these Parthians 
were probably, though we don't know as much as we'd like to about them, though I try in the book as much as possible, which people on the whole don't do when they're writing these things, to, to, to show it as every other chapter as far as I can from the other side, because it's important, you know, to, you know, to, to see that. I, I do do that. But they were undoubtedly a great deal more sophisticated culture than uh, Crassus could have possibly imagined. And therefore, the fact that his head then turned up as, as a prop in a Greek play that he'd probably never seen, but was uh, he would have thought the Parthians were far too barbarian to understand. Well, let's say it has a certain irony that appealed to um, historians who wrote about it later. Peter Starlight, thank you very much. Thank you. Crassus, the first tycoon, is out now. <laughs>